Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with post-scarcity anarchism as we dig into a chapter on ecology and how that reflects anarchist theory. So let's begin. The Critical Nature of Ecology The critical edge of ecology, a unique feature of the science in a period of general scientific docility, derives from its subject matter, from its very domain. The issues with which ecology deals are imperishable, in the sense that they cannot be ignored without bringing into question the survival of man and the survival of the planet itself. The critical edge of ecology is due not so much to the power of human reason, a power which science hallowed during its most revolutionary periods, but to a still higher power, the sovereignty of nature. It may be that man is manipulable, as the owners of the mass media argue, or that elements of nature are manipulable, as the engineers demonstrate. But ecology clearly shows that the totality of the natural world, nature viewed in all its aspects, cycles, and interrelationships, cancels out all human pretensions to mastery over the planet. The great wastelands of the Mediterranean basin, once areas of a thriving agriculture or a rich natural flora, are historic evidence of nature's revenge against human parasitism. No historic examples compare in weight and scope with the effects of man's despoliation and nature's revenge since the days of the Industrial Revolution and especially since the end of the Second World War. Ancient examples of human parasitism were essentially local in scope. There were precisely examples of man's potential for destruction and nothing more. Often they were compensated by remarkable improvements in the natural ecology of a region, such as the European peasantry's superb reworking of the soil during centuries of cultivation, and the achievements of Inca agriculturists in terracing the Andes Mountains during the pre-Columbian times. Modern man's despoliation of the environment is global in scope, like his imperialisms. It is even extraterrestrial, as witnessed the disturbances of the Van Alien Belt a few years ago. Today, human parasitism disrupts more than the atmosphere, climate, water, resources, soil, flora, and fauna of a region. It upsets virtually all the basic cycles of nature and threatens to undermine the stability of the environment on a worldwide scale. As an example of the scope of modern man's disruptive role, it has been estimated that the burning of fossil fuels, coal and oil, adds 600 million tonnes of carbon dioxide to the air annually, about 0.03% of the total atmospheric mass. This, I may add, aside from an incalculable quantity of toxicants. Since the Industrial Revolution, the overall mass of carbon dioxide has increased by 25% over earlier, more stable levels. It can be argued on very sound theoretical grounds that this growing blanket of carbon dioxide, by intercepting heat radiated from the Earth, will lead to more destructive storm patterns and eventually to melting of the polar ice caps, rising sea levels, and the inundation of vast land areas. 
far removed as such a deluge may be, the changing proportion of carbon dioxide to other atmospheric gases is a warning about the impact man is having on the balance of nature. A more immediate ecological issue is man's extensive pollution of the Earth's waterways. What counts here is not the fact that man befouls a given stream, river, or lake, a thing he has done for ages, but rather the magnitude water pollution has reached in the past two generations. Nearly all the surface waters of the United States are now polluted. Many American waterways are often cesspools that properly qualify as extensions of urban sewage systems. It is a euphemism to describe them as rivers or lakes. More significantly, large amounts of groundwater are sufficiently polluted to be undrinkable, and a number of local hepatitis epidemics have been traced to polluted wells in suburban areas. In contrast to surface water pollution, the pollution of ground or subsurface water is immensely difficult to eliminate and tends to linger on for decades after the sources of pollution have been removed. An article in a mass circulation magazine appropriately describes the polluted waterways of the United States as our dying waters. This despairing, apocalyptic description of the water pollution problem in the United States really applies to the world at large. The waters of the earth are literally dying. Massive pollution is destroying the rivers and lakes of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, as well as the long-abused waterways of highly industrialized continents as media of life. I speak here not only of radioactive pollutants from nuclear bomb tests and power reactors, which apparently reach all the flora and fauna of the sea, the oil spills and the discharge of diesel oil have also become massive pollution problems claiming marine life in enormous quantities every year. Accounts of this kind can be repeated for virtually every part of the biosphere. Pages could be written on the immense losses of productive soil that occur annually in almost every continent of the Earth, on lethal air pollution episodes in major urban areas, on the worldwide distribution of toxic agents such as radioactive isotopes and lead, on the chemicalization of man's immediate environment, one might say his very dinner table, with pesticide residues and food additives. Pieced together like bits of a jigsaw puzzle, these affronts to the environment form a pattern of destruction that has no precedent in man's long history on Earth. Obviously, man could be described as a highly destructive parasite who threatens to destroy his host, the natural world, and eventually himself. In ecology, however, the word parasite is not an answer to a question, but raises a question itself. Ecologists know that a destructive parasitism of this kind usually reflects the disruption of an ecological situation. Indeed, many species that seem highly destructive under one set of conditions are eminently useful under another set of conditions. What imparts a profoundly critical function to ecology is the question raised by man's destructive abilities. What is the disruption that has turned man into a destructive parasite? 
what produces a form of parasitism that results not only in vast natural imbalances, but also threatens the existence of humanity itself. Man has produced imbalances not only in nature, but more fundamentally, in his relations with his fellow man and in the very structure of his society. The imbalances man has produced in the natural world are caused by the imbalances he has produced in the social world. A century ago, it would have been possible to regard air pollution and water contamination as the result of the self-seeking activities of industrial barons and bureaucrats. Today, this moral explanation would be a gross oversimplification. It is doubtless true that most bourgeois enterprises are still guided by a public-be-damned attitude, as witness the reactions of power utilities, automobile concerns, and steel corporations to pollution problems. But a more serious problem than the attitude of the owners is the size of the firms themselves. Their enormous proportions, their location in a particular region, their density with respect to a community or waterway, their requirements for raw materials and water, and their role in the national division of labour. What we are seeing today is a crisis in social ecology. Modern society, especially as we know it in the United States and Europe, is being organised around immense urban belts, a highly industrialised agriculture, and, capping both, a swollen, bureaucratized, anonymous state apparatus. If we put all moral considerations aside for the moment and examine the physical structure of this society, what must necessarily impress us is the incredible logistical problems it is obliged to solve. Problems of transportation, of density, of supply, of raw materials, manufactured commodities and foodstuffs, of economic and political organisation, of industrial location, and so forth. The burden this type of urbanised and centralised society places on any continental area is enormous. Diversity and simplicity. The problem runs even deeper. The notion that man must dominate nature emerges directly from the domination of man by man. The patriarchal family planted the seed of domination in the nuclear relations of humanity. The classical split in the ancient world between spirit and reality, indeed between mind and labour, nourished it. The anti-naturalist bias of Christianity tended to its growth. But it was not until organic community relations, feudal or peasant in form, dissolved into market relationships, that the planet itself was reduced to a resource for exploitation. This centuries-long tendency finds its most exacerbating development in modern capitalism. Owing to its inherently competitive nature, bourgeois society not only pits humans against each other, it also pits the mass of humanity against the natural world. Just as men are converted into commodities, so every aspect of nature is converted into a commodity, a resource to be manufactured and merchandised wantonly. The liberal euphemisms for the processes involved are growth industrial society, and urban blight. By whatever language they are described, the phenomena have their roots in the domination of man by man. 
The phrase consumer society complements the description of the present social order as an industrial society. Needs are tailored by the mass media to create a public demand for utterly useless commodities, each carefully engineered to deteriorate after a predetermined period of time. The plundering of the human spirit by the marketplace is paralleled by the plundering of the earth by capital. The liberal identification is a metaphor that neutralizes the social thrust of the ecological crisis. Despite the current clamor about population growth, the strategic ratios in the ecological crisis are not the population growth rates of India, but the production rates of the United States a country that produces more than half of the world's goods. Here too, liberal euphemisms like affluence conceal the critical thrust of a blunt word like waste. With a ninth of its industrial capacity committed to war production, the US is literally trampling upon the earth and shredding ecological links that are vital to human survival. If current industrial projections prove to be accurate, the remaining 30 years of the century will witness a five-fold increase in electrical power production, based mostly on nuclear fuels and coal. The colossal burden in radioactive wastes and other effluents that this increase will place on the natural ecology of the earth hardly needs description. In shorter perspective, the problem is no less disquieting. Within the next five years, lumber production may increase an overall 20%. The output of paper, 5% annually. Folding boxes, 3% annually. Plastics, which currently form 1-2% of municipal wastes, 7% annually. Collectively, these industries account for the most serious pollutants in the environment. The utterly senseless nature of modern industrial activity is perhaps best illustrated by the decline in returnable and reusable beer bottles from 54 billion bottles in 1960 to 26 billion today. Their place has been taken over by one-way bottles, a rise from 8 to 21 billion in the same period, and cans an increase from 38 to 53 billion. The one-way bottles and the cans, of course, pose tremendous problems in solid waste disposal. The planet, conceived of as a lump of minerals, can support these mindless increases in the output of trash. The Earth, conceived of as a complex web of life, certainly cannot. The only question is whether the Earth can survive its looting long enough for man to replace the current destructive social system with a humanistic, ecologically oriented society. Ecologists are often asked, rather tauntingly, to locate with scientific exactness the ecological breaking point of nature, the point at which the natural world will cave in on man. This is equivalent to asking a psychiatrist for the precise moment when a neurotic will become a non-functional psychotic. No such answer is ever likely to be available, but the ecologist can supply a strategic insight into the directions man seems to be following as a result of his split with the natural world. From the standpoint of ecology, man is dangerously oversimplifying his environment. 
The modern city represents a regressive encroachment of the synthetic on the natural, of the inorganic, concrete, metals, and glass, on the organic, of crude, elemental stimuli, on variegated, wide-ranging ones. The vast urban belts, now developing in industrialized areas of the world, are not only grossly offensive to the eye and the ear, they are chronically smog-ridden, noisy, and virtually immobilized by congestion. The process of simplifying man's environment and rendering it increasingly elemental and crude has a cultural as well as a physical dimension. The need to manipulate immense urban populations to transport, feed, employ, educate, and somehow entertain millions of densely concentrated people leads to a crucial decline in civic and social standards. A mass concept of human relations, totalitarian, centralistic, and regimented in orientation, tends to dominate the more individuated concepts of the past. Bureaucratic techniques of social management tend to replace humanistic approaches. All that is spontaneous, creative, and individuated is circumscribed by the standardized, the regulated, and the massified. The space of the individual is steadily narrowed by the restrictions imposed upon him by a faceless, impersonal social apparatus. Any recognition of unique personal qualities is increasingly surrendered to the manipulation of the lowest common denominator of the mass. A quantitative, statistical approach, a beehive manner of dealing with man, tends to triumph over the precious individualized and qualitative approach which places the strongest emphasis on personal uniqueness, free expression, and cultural complexity. The same regressive simplification of the environment occurs in modern agriculture. Footnote 19. The manipulated people in modern cities must be fed, and to feed them involves an extension of industrial farming. Food plants must be cultivated in a manner that allows for a high degree of mechanization, not to reduce human toil, but to increase productivity and efficiency, to maximize investments, and to exploit the biosphere. Accordingly, the terrain must be reduced to a flat plane, to a factory floor, if you will, and natural variations in topography must be diminished as much as possible. Plant growth must be closely regulated to meet the tight schedules of food processing factories. Plowing, soil fertilization, sowing and harvesting must be handled on a mass scale, often in total disregard of the natural ecology of an area. Large areas of the land must be used to cultivate a single crop a form of plantation agriculture that not only lends itself to mechanization, but also to pest infestation. A single crop is the ideal environment for the proliferation of pest species. Finally, chemical agents must be used lavishly to deal with the problems created by insects, weeds, and plant diseases, to regulate crop production and to maximize soil exploitation. The real symbol of modern agriculture is not the sickle, or for that matter the tractor, but the airplane. 
the modern food cultivator is represented not by the peasant, the yeoman, or even the agronomist, men who could be expected to have an intimate relationship with the unique qualities of the land on which they grow crops, but the pilot or chemist, for whom soil is a mere resource, an inorganic raw material. The simplification process is carried still further by an exaggerated regional, indeed national, division of labor. Immense areas of the planet are increasingly reserved for specific industrial tasks or reduced to depots for raw materials. Others are turned into centers of urban population, largely occupied with commerce and trade. Cities and regions, in fact countries and continents, are specifically identified with special products. Pittsburgh, Cleveland and Youngstown with steel, New York with finance, Bolivia with tin, Arabia with oil, Europe and the US with industrial goods, and the rest of the world with raw materials of one kind or another. The complex ecosystems which make up the regions of a continent are submerged by an organization of entire nations into economically rationalized entities, each a way station in a vast industrial belt system, global in its dimensions. It is only a matter of time before the most attractive areas of the countryside succumb to the concrete mixer, just as most of the eastern seashore areas of the United States have already succumbed to subdivisions and bungalows. What will remain in the way of natural beauty will be debased by trailer lots, canvas slums, scenic highways, motels, food stalls, and the oil slicks of motorboats. The point is that man is undoing the work of organic evolution by creating vast urban agglomerations of concrete, metal, and glass, by overriding and undermining the complex, subtly organized ecosystems that constitute local differences in the natural world, in short, by replacing a highly complex organic environment with a simplified inorganic one, man is disassembling the biotic pyramid that supported humanity for countless millennia. In the course of replacing the complex ecological relationships on which all advanced living things depend, for more elementary relationships, Man is steadily restoring the biosphere to a stage which will be able to support only simpler forms of life. If this great reversal of the evolutionary process continues, it is by no means fanciful to suppose that the preconditions for higher forms of life will be irreparably destroyed and the earth will become incapable of supporting man himself. Ecology derives its critical edge not only from the fact that it alone, among all the sciences, presents this awesome message to humanity, but also because it presents this message in a new social dimension. From an ecological viewpoint, the reversal of organic evolution is the result of appalling contradictions between town and country, state and community, industry and husbandry, mass manufacture and craftsmanship, centralism and regionalism, the bureaucratic scale and the human scale. And that is going to do it for this week. We'll be wrapping up this chapter on ecology next time. 
If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find lots of his work there. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the podcast network there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.